0: Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to over there, even futuristic transportation. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, and my usual co-host, Joseph Peters. This is the time that he would be chiming in about something. Well, he isn't here, as you can tell. He sent me a text a little after 2 o'clock this morning. As I was getting up for work, yeah, I get up at about 2.15 every every day for work. And he uh, said that he's not coming in. So here I am. That's not good if, if he said at 2 o'clock he's still up. And then he would usually show up here around 10 o'clock. So I, about, I usually get about six and a half hours of sleep. So why can't he do that? Anyway, so he's not here, but I am here solo. And that's no matter because today on the show we're going to be talking a lot about the Hyperloop. It's the um, near vacuum tube that would have a pod running through it that's propelled by magnetic levitation. It's a really interesting concept, and it continues to be developed out there in the Nevada uh, desert. There's also a big consortium of people that are developing it here in Colorado, and there's going to be a big conference that's going to be happening here in Golden, Colorado in early July, and we'll speak with Dave Klute. He is the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership, and they work to advance the Hyperloop. And not only is Dave a Hyperloop expert, but he's a super advocate, uh, and he's a uh, super nuts about it. So we'll talk all about Hyperloop with Dave, and it'll be a fascinating interview, I think. And we'll hook up with Dave in just a minute. Uh, By the way, if you ever want to reach out to the show here, you can get me on Twitter, at Denver7Traffic. You can also reach out and use your phone for what it's intended for. A phone. That's right. You can actually use it to dial this number, 303-832-0217. 303-832-0217. I'm still waiting for some calls, some feedback calls. Yay, nay, or complaints. Rants, questions, commentary, anything, even just hi. That's all you have to do is say hi uh, uh, on the voicemail, and then, and then you could hang up. And I'd play that here on the show, because I think it would be funny. Anyway, uh, give me <laughs> you can call 303-832-0217. Uh, this could be one of the strangest stories I've presented to you here on the Driving You Crazy podcast, Dateline Jefferson County, Pennsylvania. An Amish man is facing charges after he allegedly stole a neighbor's car and then went on an unsuccessful drive. At almost midnight on a Saturday night, a couple of Puxatawney police officers spotted a Nissan Rogue in a parking lot at a restaurant with the airbags that had been deployed, and it looked, the car did, like it had been in a crash. Well, the officers went into the restaurant. They were told by the bartender there was an Amish man in the bar who may have driven the vehicle. There are so many wrong things with that sentence. The officer talked to 21-year-old Jacob Byler, and he told the officers he couldn't lie and that, yes, he took the car. So I guess it's not alleged anymore. He admitted to the crime. Jacob then told the officers he went to his neighbor's house with the intention of having his neighbor giving him a ride into town. But then he noticed the keys were in the vehicle, and he decided to go for that joyride. He said he lost control of the car, probably because he had never driven before, and he hit an embankment, but continued driving into the restaurant even after the crash. He was charged with car theft and unauthorized use of a vehicle, and when he got back into town, his little town, I wouldn't be surprised that he lost his horse and buggy and license at the same time. It's Lisa Hidalgo, everybody. I only have this one microphone.
1: He's literally been in here for like 45 minutes. Don't mind me. I just got to record some stuff for... Uh... Oh, you don't care. No. I'm going to let Kristen Stork, who's uh... Is that in charge of all this, I'm okay, going to let her sure. know you don't care. You
0: well, know. here, I, I want you to get, go and get your reaction to this story. Are you oh, ready? Yeah. Here's a story that reads a lot like it's fake, but it's real news. A man named Francis Guruhu. How do you say that? G-U-R-A-H-O-O.
1: Uh, Guruhu.
0: So we'll go with that. He was stopped by customs officials at the Kennedy Airport in New York, charged with trying to smuggle approximately 34 singing finches from Guyana into the United States.
1: Okay. First of all, at least it wasn't drugs. I mean, right? (laughs) That's, I guess, my initial reaction.
0: Uh, He uh, was concealing each live bird. This is the good part. In plastic hair curlers in his carry-on bag. (laughs)
1: Yay! (laughs) it makes perfect sense to me you know i've actually used curlers to put things in because it's like a void space that's wasting space so why not shove something in there like a like a a bird
0: well sure because well it's a bird that's why the man told prosecutors he planned to sell the suitcase of birds for about a hundred thousand dollars at the going rate for about three grand a bird guyanese finches are known to be used for singing contests in brooklyn and queen's gamblers set the songbirds against each other and bet on their voices in such contests often conducted in public areas like parks two finches sing and a judge selects the bird he determines to have the best
1: voice okay there's a lot wrong with this story i mean there's a lot wrong with the story right first of all we are smuggling birds in curlers singing singing birds and curlers now Are their beaks clipped? Like, how are they not singing during the the whole... They're in the suitcase singing in the rollers, I'm assuming. Right, I would think so. And how are they not flying away? Maybe their wings are clipped. Oh, this is awful. We're PETA. Call PETA.
0: Now, when a bird becomes a champion, apparently, its value can spike to over $5,000. A U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service investigation called Operation G-Bird Stated a male finch... Wait
1: a second. That's the best part. We actually have something called Operation G-Bird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably for Guyana finches. Yeah. They state a male finch with a good pedigree yeah. and a winning track record can sell for up to $10,000. Customs and Border Protection says it nabbed smugglers trying to get nearly 200 finches into the United States last year. Now, I would think the judges could be bribed because it obviously is subjective to see which bird sings the best
1: well that's a good point i mean i have as you know i'm tone deaf so certain (laughs) birds would sound really good to me whereas others wouldn't i I don't know i again apparently meth's not a problem it's the birds it's the finches
0: it is the finches all right well all right let me finish this interview and i'll be i'll be right and i'll Uh, be right with you hurry up there she goes all right well, I'm excited to get into this next topic. We have talked many times here on the show about the advancement of the Hyperloop, and we wanted to explore more about it. And I think it's really going to transform the way we ship goods across the country, even more so than just moving people quickly from place to place. It really could be one of the most revolutionary pieces of technology created to this date. And coming up soon in Golden, Colorado, the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership will be holding their second annual Harp Conference on Hyperloop Industry and Related Technologies. It's going to be July 8th and 9th at the Colorado School of Mines. And to talk all about Hyperloop, I've invited Dave Klute. He is the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership to be here on the show. Dave, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: All right, Dave. So before we look at exactly how the Hyperloop operates and all the challenges it faces, we'll get into that in a little bit, let's get to know Dave a little bit. How did you get interested in the Hyperloop and what is HARP
2: all about? Well, I will do my best to give you the short version. Uh, I'm a Denver native. I, uh, My wife and I were both born in Denver and uh, I Grew up there, went to school, local schools, University of Colorado Boulder, in the engineering program, and started out my career as an architectural engineer back in the 80s. And so we, we've seen lots of cycles in Denver, uh, oil and gas, communications, telecommunications, energy, solar. And throughout my career, I've always been interested in anything to do with architecture, engineering, transportation, economic development, because it's all connected. And we've seen the growth of the Front Range of Colorado from if you go up north, even as far as Cheyenne, and then it goes south, you go south know, through Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. Technically, this whole area is known as the Rocky Mountain Front Range Mega Region, which technically goes down to Albuquerque. And you know better than I all the challenges we have with transportation up and down the Front Range. Uh, And we're constrained to the west but we've got lots of open land to the north the east and the south and uh so throughout my career i was interested in this and an opportunity came up in 2016 of march of 2016 to learn more about this and it's because i worked for cisco systems for 10 years and the gentleman that everyone thought was going to be the next CEO of Cisco left Cisco and became the first CEO of Hyperloop One in 2016. And the, this all of the buzz about this Hyperloop business really started in 2013 when Elon Musk published the white paper called Hyperloop Alpha. Now, I think a lot of people know who Elon Musk is and people said, "Well, aren't you kind of busy with Tesla and Spacex And he said, "Yes, so I'm going to open source all of this information and invite people to enter a competition about making this a real thing and so you know, in the beginning, these things get overhyped and and lots of misconceptions are created. But what happened is that uh Hyperloop One became Virgin Hyperloop One and it's Virgin uh, Airlines. It's Richard Branson invested and it became Virgin Hyperloop One. They launched the global challenge, which is similar to what is known as the Prize. The XPRIZE was that competition for private space travel. And so they, they created this global challenge in May of 2016 I was working full time for Zurich insurance in their corporate real estate department. And this for me started as just kind of a a hobby really, but sometimes hobbies turn into something more. And so myself along with another local entrepreneur named John Whitcomb, he and I got interested in this and we flew out to Nevada to see firsthand in the desert, North of Las Vegas, what was being created then, known as the Hyperloop One Dev Loop, D E V L O P, Dev Loop. Well, to test out the theory that, that Elon Musk had, and he described the Hyperloop as being a cross between air hockey, the Concorde jet, and a railgun. So that's kind of a strange combination. But what it really means is that there's a lot of people now that are either developing full-scale prototypes and test tracks, which it's basically a tube. Imagine a water pipe, 15 feet in diameter, and they're all connected together. And then you take the air out of the tube. You, you You evacuate the tube so that it's a near vacuum, not a complete vacuum. But the whole idea is you want a near vacuum and inside the tube you put a magnetic levitation rail system so that the capsules or the pods, which are the size of a cargo container or a school bus are propelled through this near vacuum at high speeds. In fact, it's, it's theorized that it's, we haven't got there yet, but it's theorized that the physics and the science behind it, there's no reason that these capsules or pods can't go the speed of sound so imagine getting in this tube and a human getting into a tube it's going to feel like a first class airline seat when you get in and it it won't take off like a rocket it'll start slow and it's it uses a similar technology to maglev rail lines technically it's it's referred to as a linear induction motor electrically powered by renewable energy, solar or wind, but it's a renewable energy source. And there's lots of very compelling reasons why this this technology, this crazy idea can and will work. And so the first successful test of this technology was the open air propulsion system test in the desert by Hyperloop One. And I love the name they used of the test rig, it's called Blade Runner. Because it was an open air track and they were just testing the propulsion system and it was wildly successful it it got launched from a standstill this little test rig called blade runner they launched it it went from zero to i don't remember the exact number i'd have to look up But it was like 200 miles an hour in literally three to four seconds the problem is when you do something like that it also has to stop so braking is important
0: Yeah, most people want to stop slowly, not quickly.
2: Exactly. And so what you do is you reverse the propulsion mechanism and you slow it down by reversing the induction motor. It becomes a braking system. But what happens is when it gets going, the propulsion system actually levitates so that there's no friction between the bottom of the tube or the rail and magnetic levitation. You're actually riding on magnetic air bearings and that's similar to high-speed rail and maglev trains that are pretty common now in europe and japan in fact maglev high-speed train travel is also improving dramatically and quickly and a lot of folks say well we don't need hyperloop because we're going to have maglev rail lines well we've learned that this is not as much an engineering challenge as a social, economic, and environmental challenge. The engineering problems are being solved pretty quickly and they're being tested, prototyped, and proven by companies like Hyperloop One out in the desert of Las Vegas on the dev loop. Um, Another global company, very different business model known as the Hyperloop Transportation Technologies or HTT. And this is a global company that was founded with a completely different business model. Hyperloop One was founded as a uh, West Coast, Las Vegas-based startup for-profit company. And, and it's, it's doing very well. And they're growing, they're, they're hitting their milestones in terms of testing and, and, and proving out the theory. HTT took a a very different approach and said, we're going to gather people from around the world and give them the opportunity to invent the future and they will be invested and rewarded and compensated by stock in a company that when it becomes a viable funded technology, the founders and and early adopters and inventors will benefit from from the risk that they're taking now as inventors. So there's lots of other companies in the mix. Those are the two that are often talked about. But there's also uh, TransPod Canada. There's uh, other companies throughout North America. So we got very excited about this. Well, in May of 2016, they launched this global challenge. The Rocky Mountain Hyperloop Consortium team expanded to 30 people, and we included architects, engineers, planners, data scientists, academics, and one of our founding partners is Dr. Rick Geddes. He runs the Cornell program for policy and infrastructure at, uh, back in New York, and he is—he's incredible when it comes to helping us understand the economics of this whole model because it doesn't work without funding and financing. And so he helped us develop the economic model. It, it was successful to the point that out of 2,600 entries from 40 countries around the globe, we made the semifinals. We, we were part of the 35 global semifinalists. We made the shortlist of 16 teams in North America. And in April, 2017, we presented at the Vision for America Conference sponsored by Virgin Hyperloop One. And I think at the time Virgin hadn't bought in yet. I think it was still Hyperloop One. I'd have to check the timing. But long story short, the other team from Colorado is the Rocky Mountain Hyperloop team. And that was formed by CDOT, Colorado Department of Transportation, in partnership with a global architectural engineering firm known as AECOM. And uh, they were successful to the point that they became one of the 10 finalists in North America. And the finalists were given the opportunity to work with Hyperloop One, and they went on to develop a feasibility study. And it's it's an incredible sign that this whole movement of high-speed transportation as a viable fifth form of transportation beyond cars and trucks, rails, airplanes, aviation, and boats. Uh, there's a lot of us believe that the Hyperloop and the subsequent networking of these Hyperloop tubes will create a viable fifth form of transportation.
0: I'm speaking with Dave Clute, the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership about the Hyperloop in an upcoming conference in Golden. Uh, Dave, do you see this Hyperloop used as more useful to move people or to move stuff?
2: There is a compelling business case for both. And when we entered the competition, we said, well, what's the strongest business case for where this thing should be built, the first loop? Because you have to do, you can't do it all at once, you gotta start small. And it's partly because this group that came together said, we're gonna have the best chance to prove this out where there's wide open space flat land and few environmental barriers, and we need right-of-way. So the, the funding, the people, the, the populations that need this kind of transportation are on both coasts, the west coast, the east coast. I mean, if you, if you look at the Amtrak corridors between you know, Baltimore and Washington, up and down the northeast corridor, it's very difficult to add any type of new right-of-way of any kind on either coast. But what if you connected an intermodal terminal where there's 110 cargo trains moving every day east-west? Well, guess where that is? Cheyenne, Wyoming. (laughs) There's a lot of space in Cheyenne. There's a lot of space and a ton of cargo moving across the country between Chicago and Sacramento and Los Angeles. And so as part of this, we had to learn a lot about what are the existing paths of travel of moving people and cargo across North America. And we said, well, it becomes pretty obvious when you start to look at existing rail lines and highway systems and the 11 mega regions in North America. Now the mega regions, a lot of people are starting to realize that in the very near future, the majority of the earth's population will be living in densely populated urban areas, cities, and we just recently just i think it's maybe 2010 we crossed that 50% line where the world's population now 50% of the world's population live in densely populated cities so it's very important that we understand and recognize how important city planning and urban growth is going to be to our future and survival as a species and uh one of the most recent National Geographic's, April 2019, is dedicated, there's a special issue, just to cities. And transportation is a major challenge. And what, what we thought is, you really don't need to go the speed of sound from Denver to Fort Collins or Denver to Colorado Springs. I'd like to. It'd be fun. But you don't need to. Uh, you really need high-speed transportation between mega-regions. So I'm really, I'm. I've placed a bet with a lot of people I know and work with that by the time I am seventy. So I'm. I'm a. I just turned sixty-one, and I, I'll. I'll place a bet. I'll go on record of saying I'm going to be able to get on a hyperloop network near DIA and travel to Chicago for a lunch meeting, downtown Chicago. And so I'll get on first thing in the morning and I won't worry about TSA or airport traffic or parking. I would hope that you
0: would have some kind of security to go through.
2: Well, there will be security, but it'll be the second or third generation of TSA and it's going to be a lot easier. Maybe by then it'll be automated. It'll be, uh, androids and robots that look like humans, but there'll be androids that say, you know, they greet you and it'll be automated because the way I'll get there is by dialing up an autonomous vehicle on my smartphone, the autonomous vehicle will pick me up at my front door. It will take me to the Hyperloop terminal. And that same vehicle may actually just kind of find its way into the Hyperloop capsule and it'll be seamless or maybe i'll get out of the autonomous vehicle and you know step through the lounge and grab a cup of coffee and find my first class hyperloop comfortable seat and then i'll depart the DIA hyperloop terminal and i'll be in chicago in time for my 10 am meeting downtown chicago because i'll i'll end up at the hyperloop terminal at at o'hare and I'll go from O'Hare to downtown in about four minutes. I'll have my meeting downtown Chicago, finish up lunch around mm, one o'clock, find my way back to the terminal in downtown Chicago, and I'll be back home before dinner.
0: It doesn't seem that it can be that, not, not that the, the, the technology can get you from place to place quickly, but it doesn't seem that in nine years that will be a reality the way we are looking at Because we we don't even have any operating tubes
2: right now. That's correct. But uh, I'm going out on a limb here and painting a vision that may or may not happen. If it doesn't happen between Denver and Chicago, it could happen between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, or it could happen between St. Louis and Cleveland. Actually, that, that's a probably a safer bet as the the route in the Midwest, using the existing I-70 corridors that are flat and straight, because that's what you need. You need existing right ways that are open, flat. Because if you're going the speed of sound, it's kind of hard to turn. You need very large turning radii, and flat land. There's a lot of open land between Denver, Chicago. Uh, have you ever driven through Kansas?
0: Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, recently, yes, I have. And there is a lot of open land. But that, but that's going to be one of the major also issues here is land acquisition. So it, I would think that's going to be one of the major hurdles is, one, acquiring land because, the, as I understand it right now, it goes above ground. But can it also go underground?
2: It can go. And that's the preferred method. That's the least expensive mode is above ground on elevated piers because if you're a rancher or a landowner operator, and if the tubes are elevated, and you've got cattle or livestock, it could be closed range, open range, the cattle don't much care what's you know 30 feet above them. It's kind of like, now there is a lot of controversy around wind towers, but I, I see a lot of wind towers and wind farms coexisting quite well with oil and gas fields, cattle ranges, open livestock. And so it's a compatible use, but granted you still have right-of-way issues, but the right-of-way issues are gonna be discussed at our conference because the theme of this year's conference is all about right-of-ways, civil engineering, technical challenges, energy challenges, and a big emphasis on safety and security because this creates a whole new target a whole new opportunity for terrorists and and people that want to do damage to public infrastructure. So we're and this this is actually a pretty good segue to talk about HARP. When we didn't make the cut uh, to the finalists, when I say we, it's the thirty people that were working on the Rocky Mountain Hyperloop Consortium. We said, wow, we we never expected to even make it that far. We went from I mean, if you do do the math. Um, were like a rounding error out of 2,600 entries. And these were all volunteers. These, this was all done volunteer time. We all had day jobs. But it was fun, because it was short, short-lived. It was May to October 2016. They didn't announce the semifinalists until 2017. And then they had the vision for American April. And we said, wow, that was interesting, but what do we do now? And so we split into two groups. One group formed a new company. And this is John Whitcomb and Rebecca Leonard. And and John can talk to you about the HyperNet Holding Corporation. That's the for-profit entity that is focusing on ways to create a business model that makes this not only real, but sustainable and energy efficient. But we also saw a need for kind of a research and development arm, and that's where the hyperloop advanced research partnership came from as a non entity focused on becoming the hub of information for knowledge research applied research academic research peer-reviewed research and development as a neutral third-party trusted advisor to represent the good the bad and the ugly about should this thing even exist i mean is it is it so crazy that we shouldn't even pursue it Well, there's a lot of people now, and and a lot of them will be at the conference, including uh, Mr. Ariel Wolf, who is uh, representing the Department of Transportation. He was appointed to the uh, Technology Council recently chartered by the U.S. Department of Transportation under Elizabeth Chow. So Ariel is one of our keynotes. He will be talking about what the DOT has been doing in the last months and reaching back a couple of years about the Hyperloop, which is analogous to what happened in the 50s with the interstate highway system. A lot of people don't realize that the interstate highway system connecting our major cities in the 50s and 60s was driven by the need to transport material cargo and people, machines, and equipment and the right of ways, the interstate highway system, like I 25 is a perfect example. Of, I never knew it until I learned as part of the global challenge that the, the right of way for our I 25 corridor is 300 feet. That's the width of a football field. You can land a B 25 in a 300 foot right of way if you need to. And so the whole interstate highway system was designed and developed and paid for by the Department of Defense. But it became a very useful way to connect our cities so that we could drive from Denver to Chicago or LA or Houston in a reasonable amount of time. So the hypernet network is the interstate highway system, 21st century version, but using a different mode of transport guideways that are either elevated, suspended underground, above ground, below ground. They can go through, Uh, oceans and with the new tunneling technologies that are coming from companies like the boring company instead of worrying about going over or under mountains lakes or rivers or oceans just go straight because it's really important to keep the tubes straight level and flexible because you have to accommodate thermal and seismic movements that's one of the engineering challenges but if you just go straight, you can, you can go through the mountains, where you can go you know, across oceans, waterways. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it to the point that it sounds trivial, because it's not. Uh, we estimate the cost right now of constructing the Hyperloop system to be about $200 million per mile. That's a lot.
0: That's a ton. I'm speaking with Dave Clute. He's the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership. About the Hyperloop and the upcoming conference talking about Hyperloop, it's going to be in Golden on July 8th and 9th. I want to get back, Dave, to the logistics of the actual tube and how the environment will affect it. You mentioned there is a lot of land around Cheyenne and out here in the Great Plains. But what about real life, real physical challenges of the tube sitting in an open field in Nebraska on that line from Chicago to Denver during the heat of the summer or the cold of the winter? We know what the, we, we know what weather can do to our cars and, and other mechanical uh, uh, operations. What, what does that extreme do to the Hyperloop?
2: Great, great questions. And I'll give you the short answer, but I invite you and your listeners to attend the conference, specifically session four, that talks about the physics of the Hyperloop, the technical challenges and solutions that deal with thermal movement, seismic movement, because you have to be able to move in multiple dimensions, up and down, sideways, back and forth. Because here's a great example. When they built the St. Louis Arch, they, they had to worry about Half of the arch expanding in the sun, because the sun was coming up on the east side. And the east side of the arch, when they're building it, actually expanded quite a lot. And so thermal movement is a big issue for metal tubes as well. And so that's the whole reason for Hyperloop One building the test track in the desert of Nevada, which can get pretty hot. And at nighttime, it gets kind of chilly in the desert.
0: But it doesn't get to 30 degrees below zero.
2: Correct. So we're going to need new materials. We, we can't do it with steel water pipe. I mean, the, the, the test loop is built from that just so we can prove out the theory. But this is going to create opportunities for new materials science. And that's why we need our students starting as young as kindergarten, elementary school, junior high and high school, getting involved. It's going to create opportunities for new material science because it's The the logical answer to that question is it has to be a new type of material that can be easily manufactured, deployed, installed, operated, and maintained. And I don't have the answer yet, but I think, based on what I've learned, it's going to be a composite material made of metal and carbon fiber. Their capsule is made of a new material that is a carbon fiber material that's lightweight, that's what they make Formula One race cars out of. So the capsules are going to be carbon fiber. The tubes are going to have to be a composite material that can be quickly and easily produced. So the tubes themselves, the quick answer is going to be new material, probably a metal carbon fiber composite.
0: There are a lot of other challenges with new materials and with the logistics of putting this out somewhere, because what if there's a leak uh, in one of the tubes? It's not a pure vacuum, as you said, but it is going to be a near vacuum, so any leak is going to be sucking a lot of air in there, and that's going to cause a weak area in uh, the tube somewhere. I would imagine that every square mile of this tube is going to have to be at least inspected all the time. And it's going to take a lot of manpower, or at least machine power, if you have some kind of remote drone doing doing the inspections to to make sure that it's safe.
2: Absolutely, great question. I mean, how could one of those holes appear? Say, a rocket-propelled grenade, perhaps,
0: or a tornado throwing uh, a rock the at brain? it?
2: Yeah. No, that's 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 a great question. In and, and the. Type of information and, and scenarios, you know, worst case scenarios that will be envisioned and discussed in session two. Safety and security—it cuts both ways. So we've got subject matter experts, scientists that are going to try to think of worst case scenarios of what's the threat, what, what are the all different types of, you know, uh, man-made threats, natural threats, and do you, do you remember that commercial back from the 70s and 80s? I think it was about margarine and and Mother Nature came on and she said, it's not nice to mess with Mother Nature. Well, we've seen firsthand the damage that can be caused with tornadoes and hailstorms. I mean, I, I live here in Carl Springs so in Hail Alley. And, you know, what kind of damage can... Natural disasters cause, and the answer is tremendous damage. So, the engineering solution has to be figured out. How can this thing survive a tornado, or a tsunami, or hailstorm, or you know, God forbid, man-made weapons and threats?
0: Or, or even just a couple of kids spray painting this the structure. You know that uh, that the uh, tube is being held on. So it exactly. could be something yep, yep. as minuscule as that but you also have people that are messing around with it that you don't want around that type of equipment.
2: Exactly. So we're, we're in the early days of all this. You know, if I, I, I've got this diagram that shows, I call it the Hyperloop future development context model. And it it starts in 2016. And I I projected out for 20 years to say, well, what, what could this thing look like by 2036? And uh, it's, It's interesting to kind of think through these scenarios and you know what does the future look like in the design of infrastructure of of civil engineering systems of elevated guideways and tubes or tunnels and i just think we're in an incredibly exciting time where these problems and challenges are being described and, and even i mean four years ago We didn't even know that this could be a problem. So really great questions. And the whole purpose of HARP is to try to ask the right question, because oftentimes the answers don't come unless you can even formulate the question.
0: Because we are really at the beginning, as you said, of this process. And I did take a look at that future development context model. ...that you created, and it looks like it starts off as, you know, let's say, a Hyperloop tube at the very beginning here in Phase 1, and it goes out to, at least right now, Phase 5, many, many years down the road, and you have all these arrows, if you will, or, or these uh, almost wispy tubes that are going out from the 1 with all the different the, the all the problems that might come ar- around, the different questions around who's going to finance it, and how's it going to operate, how much is it going to cost, and how, how are people logistically going to get on this thing and go to Chicago, and all these different aspects of it as it travels from where it is now, maybe 20 or 30 years down the road.
2: Yep, exactly. So I, I just think that we, specifically in Denver, Colorado, in the heart of the Front Range, In the heartland of America, I think we're really well-positioned to address this issue. And uh, we've had conversations with our state, local, and government leaders who are interested and excited and intrigued by this whole thing. Um, But it's an opportunity. What have been some of these
0: political challenges that you have come across so far?
2: Well, the main thing is... uh, Creating a business model, an economic model, that could help address this. And we think the only way it's going to work is a public-private partnership. It's going to take public money. It's going to take private money. Now, the example of Hyperloop One, it's it's all privately-funded startup money funded by Silicon Valley investors. But they could profit greatly if it works. Uh, I mean, how have people done that help create the internet I, I wish i had some of that facebook stock sure. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of other options and ideas but um i think and in, in these this diagram these these ribbons of of work streams and ideas I'll, I'll just pick one let's pick one of those work streams uh automobiles that's a good one um electric cars trucks autonomous vehicles I think electric cars are incredibly interesting and and it's spawned a whole new sector of the industry, but there's a book out there called 2 Billion Cars, because pretty soon we're gonna have two billion cars on the planet. And while the book talks about vehicle transportation, the real premise of the book is the shift from a carbon-based economy to a hydrogen-powered economy. And I think that's the end game. I think electrical power, you still need, right now, you still need a power plant to produce the electricity to charge up the batteries in the cars and trucks. Now we're seeing changes in power plants quickly. We're going from coal to gas. We're going to renewables. It was pretty exciting this year to hear that for the first time in history, renewable energy for a brief time surpassed coal as the main power source. Then you look at the future of railroads and high-speed rail and Another very relevant example is right again in Denver, boom, supersonic, the successor to the Concorde jet.
0: So We've always- talked about that here on the yeah. show already.
2: Yeah, very exciting. I, I, I'm looking forward, you know, before I get on the Hyperloop to Chicago, I'm looking forward to going supersonic and flying. I'll have to go from a coastal city initially because yeah. you've got the sonic boom problem
0: And you also have well that, and you have regulations preventing any supersonic flight across the continental U.S. right now.
2: If I could, I'd buy a ticket today to go from San Francisco to Sydney, supersonic. And I'm looking forward to booking that flight either on Virgin or Japan Airlines in the next three to five years. So how
0: much money do you think is going to be poured into this Hyperloop? You mentioned some of the investors there in Silicon Valley. How much do you think is going to be poured in here? How much should be spent to make this a reality?
2: Well, I've I've got some statistics on that. Um, Right now, the Hyperloop technology market is estimated to be about $1.4 billion in 2022. Uh, The projections are a compound annual growth rate that by 2026, it'll be a $6.3 billion market. Now, if, if you do the math, $200 million a mile, you're not going to be able to build that route from Denver to Chicago if the unit cost is that high. We, there's nothing we can do unless Warren Buffett decides to put all his money into the hypo, which won't happen. But uh, it's it's going to take. Proof points along the way, and that unit cost is going to have to come way down. We, we simply can't afford $200 million a mile. So it's going to have to get to the point where we do proof of concepts. And, and maybe we start out in Colorado and we go from DIA to Greeley, as suggested by Rocky Mountain Hyperloop. That yeah, because so many
0: people want to go to Greeley.
2: Well, the reason <laughs> Greeley, the reason I mentioned Greeley is it's flat, it's open, uh, I think it's about 40 miles.
0: And so. everybody wants to leave.
2: Well, <laughs> you want to prove a concept that will prove out the idea so everybody can build the next loop that goes from DIA to Vail so we can, so we can do day skiing again. I, I don't do day trips anymore because I, I, can't, I can't get there in time. I used to be a day skier growing up, and you'd get from my house in Denver, and I'd be on the slopes by 8 o'clock can't do that anymore.
0: But how do you come over overcome those terrain challenges of, of the Rockies? And you keep saying we need something that is straight and flat. Well, the country isn't just straight and it's not just flat and we need to get from place to place. So those terrain challenges seem like it's also a pretty big issue.
2: Well, I'm going to defer to Mr. Musk to help figure that one out with the Boring Company. We'll go through the mountains with the Boring Company Solutions. And by the way, I, I don't have any stock in any of these companies. <laughs> so who are some of the big
0: investors behind it? Does Elon Musk have any money that you, you mentioned, Richard Branson? So who are some of the big investors here that are putting their money in the Hyperloop?
2: Well, Elon Musk did a smart thing. He, he's leveraging SpaceX, and he's focusing not on the tubes or the transport infrastructure. He's focusing on the capsules themselves. And there's a whole bunch of universities globally that are participating in a SpaceX pod competition, including three from Colorado. Uh, the Digger Loop uh, sc- School Mines, the Hyper Falcos team in Colorado Springs. And then you just look at all the companies at the university R&D level that are being looked at. And they're raising money on their own, but they have corporate sponsors. And these are big names if, if you just Go to the website about the SpaceX pod competition and you look at the decals that go on the, the test capsules developed by the university teams. And it's it's really a you know a litany of large corporate partners that help help these university teams build the pods. But um, you know, the big names that you hear about, of course, are you know Elon you know, Musk, Richard Branson. And lots of private investors from the Middle East. The, uh, the Dubai Port Authority is now one of the major investors in Hyperloop One. So uh, there's a lot of public money in Europe. Uh, Swiss Metro is another great example. They've been working on this since the 70s. And one of the other solutions is uh, governments providing the majority of the funding, particularly in Europe and India and China, I think we'll probably see this happen in India or China before the United States. But I would love to see it happen here, stateside in continental US before India or China. But frankly, I don't care because we're one planet and in the big scheme of things, we have to solve this problem because we can't sustain 9 billion people in 2050 with what we're using.
0: I'm speaking with Dave Clute, the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership, about the Hyperloop and about the upcoming conference here in Golden, July eighth and ninth. And talking about the conference, Dave, the Harp Conference, it's going to uh, be open to the public. Yes or no?
2: Absolutely, um, it's uh, open to public. Now it's I've got a countdown clock on my computer, and we're only uh, 17 days away. But there's still time to register. Uh, Any charge for people to go? Ah, uh, there is a charge, but it, it's nominal. I mean, for a conference of this type, normally I'm used to going to industry conferences where you pay, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars per head for this one. But uh, we've got individual registrations available for a two-day conference with world-class speakers from around the globe for 155 dollars per person, and that includes, uh, you know, breakfast and lunch at the Colorado School of Mines uh, Student Center Ballroom. So uh, I, I think it's an incredibly cost-effective investment to get this type of content, these panelists, and these speakers for a two-day conference. And besides that, it's going to be a lot of fun because we're going to kick it off Sunday night. And whoever shows up, uh, you, have to, you have to pay for your own beer and drink. <laughs> but it's going to be at the uh, Trailhead Tap House to kick this thing off. And I think Colorado is pretty well known for its... Uh, <laughs> production of beer products.
0: Oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. Well, if a friend of mine who used to be a, a newscast director here was crazy about this one beer that she could only get in Green Bay. So she could leave on the Hyperloop uh in and and get there to Green Bay in a, cu- a couple hours and back and then bring her cases of of her favorite beer <laughs> that way, right?
2: Well, I would have to check the map. I don't think we go to Green Bay yet. But <laughs> Well, well you really
0: down. don't go anywhere yet, except in, in between Desert A and Desert B. Um, what, what do you hope that is going to come out of the conference? What do you think are going to be some of the big points? What are you going to do with that information that comes out of this conference?
2: Uh, this is the second annual conference of this type, and last year we did it in L.A., and the, the outcome, the, uh, the, the work products of this conference was greater awareness and white papers; these are technical white papers by scientific experts. But this year's conference is much more commercial and enterprise focused. And what we really hope happens is that the group of people that get together over these two days, and the thing I like about it is, it's not going to be a huge conference like you know, like you see in Las Vegas. Uh, it's it's open to the public. But it's intended to be a group of 50 or 70 or 100 people that have a meaningful dialogue about the risks, the issues, the realities of, is is this thing even, I mean, are we just crazy nuts to even think about it? Or are there real solutions to these engineering, social, economic, and environmental problems that can be solved in our lifetime so that you and I can do that lunch in Chicago and get Back home in time for dinner, because I think it will happen. We don't know when or where exactly. Um, And you notice I didn't say how big a bet it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let's call it a ten dollar bet. I'll bet you ten bucks. Yeah,
0: you didn't (laughs) bet me a ham sandwich (laughs) or or a steak dinner from Ruth's Chris. So if I
2: (laughs) finally, Dave,
0: how maybe in of just a few words, how do you see uh, the Hyperloop changing the world?
2: Well, we think it's an opportunity to help many industries test out what's going to be needed in many industries. I I think it could be a way to spawn new technologies and new solutions, much the way that the space program has spawned new technologies and systems in multiple industries. Architecture, engineering, planning, urban design, transportation, uh, logistics, mechanical, electrical engineering, I mean, every aspect of this challenge requires new solutions in every field
0: and drink so I, in in the form of tang
2: i remember tang <laughs> but they're all connected you're going to need to be able to go from a mega region to mega region on a hyperloop tube and then get on a virgin galactic or a blue origin uh, spacecraft and, and achieve low earth orbit also in my lifetime there as a you private go citizen at yeah. a reasonable cost <laughs>
0: That, yeah, at a reasonable cost. I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. Yep. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being here. Dave Clute the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership. Again, the conference is coming up in Golden. So if somebody wants to sign up for the conference, how do they go about doing that?
2: Okay. It's the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership website. And it's easy to find on, on the Internet. <clears throat> Just type in uh, CARP or Hyperloop Partnership, Global Hyperloop Conference 2019. So any, any web browser will pull it up. Uh, it's really easy to register. And if anyone has any questions about the conference, uh, they can call my cell phone, 719-332-7809.
0: Okay. And they have the contact information also online as well.
2: All the contact information is there. Uh, overview agenda speaker lineup registration page venue and if you decide not if you sign up for the conference and you go and you get bored there's lots of things to do in golden colorado <laughs> that's right like tour of the coors brewery perfect exactly
0: dave thanks again for being here have uh, great success with the hyperloop conference and uh, with the hyperloop in general and we hope to be riding maybe the uh, the line to chicago in 10 years
2: well, let's let's stay in touch, and uh, we'll see if that pays off, or if I have to buy you that steak dinner. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks again. Thank you, Jason.
0: Bye. Again, that conference is July eighth and ninth at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden. It should be an interesting discussion. I would be surprised if we don't see some significant news coming out of that conference. I know we're going to have uh, some local reporters covering that, and I know that uh, one of our favorites here on the Driving You Crazy podcast, Nicole Brady, who should be sitting in uh, for Joseph next week, will be uh, interested. I think she's going to be hooking up with Dave and covering some of the conference when it happens in early July. So we'll see. um, I'm sure we'll hear more about the Hyperloop conference and what's going on out there. Again, we'll be solo next week, and I'm pretty sure I can convince the uh, superfan, podcast superfan. Nicole Brady, to come join me on the show. And then we can talk about a little bit of the Hyperloop and then her excitement about covering that conference for next week. Joseph is scheduled to be off next week. Uh, he's going to be driving, I guess, from back in uh, New England and driving his, I think it's his grandmother's car all the way back here to Colorado. So that should be an interesting <laughs> story when we do see him again. Oh, by the way, we still have the uh, line open. If you want to give us a message here on the Driving You Crazy podcast, you can call and leave a num- uh, message at the number 303-832-0217. It goes right to my voicemail, boom, and you can be on the show. So tell me yay, nay, anything you like, anything that's bugging you, anything that's driving you crazy, or any comments about the show, 303 832 0217. Thanks again for listening to the show and being a part of it. I always appreciate all the comments online. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.